You're listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This message is from the series Unlimited, with a new weekly topic to give you a clear vision of God and to start living an unlimited life. Be sure to check out Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Four years into our marriage, Janet brought our first son into the world. Now, if you know anything about child-rearing, if you know anything about the first child that you bring into the world, there's a lot of change involved in that. There's a lot of change for the woman with her body, hormonal changes, physical, biological changes, emotional changes, and then there are also a lot of changes for the couple as well because you never had a third person involved in that whole thing. So you're trying to figure out time management, life management. How many of you understand that life management and time management, they're intertwined, they're inseparable. So you're learning time management stuff, you're dealing with emotional issues, dealing with healing issues, you're dealing with family dynamics, all of that stuff at the same time. And I decided that I was going to help out Janet one particular day because Janet decided that she needed to catch up with a few things. Now you can imagine, when it's your firstborn, you're spending all this time with that child, you're spending all of this time, your whole life revolves around that child's life. And so after a period of months, my wife needed to go out and wanted to go out as she had a right to go out to do something for herself, run some errands, whatever it might be. We've talked about it. We don't know exactly what it is that she wanted to do that particular day. What we know exactly what happened on my end of things when she decided to go out and leave Titus with me. He was not old enough to walk yet, but he sure could crawl. He could crawl very well. And so Janet said, listen, are you sure that I can leave him with you? I said, what do you mean, are you sure that you can leave him with me? That's like insulting. Could you leave our newborn, under a year old, our only son, could you leave our pride and joy with me? Of course you can. Not believing what I said, she asked me again. She said, are you sure? Because you really need to pay attention to him. You are not wired the way I am. So he needs a lot of attention. You're going to have to make sure that you're caring for him. Mothers are nodding right now. Make sure that you're there for him. And also, hon, listen, I, I got this. There's nothing to worry about. In all seriousness, I'm happy to take him, happy to get our first father-son outing to be able to enjoy that together. Go do what you want to do, and I'll take care of him, no problem. So one more warning. She says, just be careful. Just really pay attention. You promised me. I said, absolutely. No problemo. No problem at all. So Janet went off to do her thing, so I figured I would do what I tend to do. You know, the big thing now is single tasking, not multitasking. But back then, multitasking was all the rage, and I figured I'd go out and I'll multitask. I'll take my son with me, and we'll go out and run a few errands. And when Janet comes back home, she'll be so impressed that I was actually able to take care of our son while I got a whole bunch of other things accomplished. So with that, I put a little court jester hat onto Titus. You know, that when you play a game of cards and you look at the joker, oftentimes the joker is wearing a court jester's hat. Well, we had this court jester's hat for Titus. And then when he outgrew it and Simeon got to wear that thing, these little tassels coming off of it, and it was this big bushy thing. And wherever we would go with him, with our kids with that thing, we'd get all kinds of comments because he looked really cute. They looked really cute in it. And it was in the wintertime. We lived in Portland, Oregon, so it wasn't as cold as it is out here, but it was cold enough where he was bundled up and had his Court Chester hat on. So the first stop for me was the bank. So I went over to the bank, 
and got out of the car, took him with me, went into the safe deposit box room back in the day, you know, when safe deposit boxes were really safe and you would deposit things in them. At least uh, people, some of you understand, I would never put my stuff in a safe deposit box. Well, I did back then and went into the bank, signed the papers that you, you know, have to confirm your identity, signed the paperwork and everything. Titus is in my, oh, look how cute he is. Look how adorable he is. He's so amazing. Go into the safe deposit box room and it's a kind of a narrow thing and a small room, but big enough for safe deposit boxes and go over to our safe deposit box and I'm realizing I got a problem here because I got to take this drawer out, but I got my son in my hand. And so rather than put my son on the floor, because he's going to crawl around in there, I looked to my left and, you know, on the one wall were the safe deposit boxes and on the other wall, there was this shelf that, you know, was deep enough to be able to put a safe deposit box on. So I figured, well, if it's strong enough to put a safe deposit box, maybe it's strong enough to hold my son on it. I got some precious cargo here that I want to take care of. So I looked at that shelf and I said, yeah, that shelf is plenty strong enough. I'm not an idiot. That thing is absolutely strong enough to hold my son. So I put my son with his jacket on and with his court jester hat right there on that shelf. And I turned around and get the safe deposit box and uh, turned the key and started pulling it out. And then I heard... And I turned around and looked, and nobody is on the shelf anymore. I looked down at the ground, and there's my son with his mouth wide open, no crying coming out of his mouth, no scream or nothing. The wind has been knocked out of him. He's just... And I'm like, that's what I said. Oh, my... Yeah. And I'm like... My whole life flashed before my eyes. I'm now going to incur, never mind the wrath of God, the wrath of Janet. And I pick up Titus, and then now he starts to scream. And I'm thinking, oh man, these people in the bank, they're going to think I did something to my son. Uh, They're going to see the cameras, and they're going to see what a real idiot I was by putting my son on the shelf. I scoop him up, and I run out into the lobby, and I say, where is the nearest emergency room? The side of his face is all red, and he's, ah, he's screaming bloody murder. His court jester's hat is still on. Thankfully, it was on. That was a very strategic thing. And I said, listen, I need to know where is the nearest urgent care facility? Where's the nearest urgent care facility? Because I knew I was too far from the hospital. So they told me where it was. I put my son uh, in the car seat too, believe it or not. Hightail it over to the uh, urgent care facility. And I'm thinking, oh man, this is great. There are no cars in the parking lot. This is fantastic. I'm going to go right in. It's not like today where you you know when it's a great time to have an emergency because you're riding down the highway and you see the billboard and the billboard tells you only three minutes of a wait. Now's a great time to get into an accident. I don't know why they put those up there. Like, are you thinking as you're driving around? Now would be a great time to get into a head-on collision because I'll only have to wait three minutes to go to get admitted. So anyway, Nobody's in the parking lot. I think, man, this is great. I scoop Titus out of the car and I go over to the sliding glass doors and they don't open and I look up and there's this piece of paper that says closed for renovations. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is an urgent care facility. I got an urgent situation. Could you not have thought this through a little bit and put a sign at the road that tells everybody before they get out of their car and go into the urgent care facility that it is closed for renovations? Now I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Too far away to go to the hospital. He's still crying. Side of his face is all red. I just drive home. I do what any good, loving, caring father would do. I absolutely panicked. 
And I went home, got to our house, first home we ever uh, owned on Yamhill Street, Southeast Yamhill Street in Portland, Oregon. Take Titus out of the car, bring him into the house, and by now he's calmed down some, but I'm thinking, man, what if? You know, I can't pretend that this didn't happen. I'm not that stupid. He could start having convulsions. He could start, I mean, years from now, he could start having problems. Some of you are starting to say already, well, that explains a lot already now, but I'll let you talk to my son. And I realized I was smart. I had a Nokia, you know, cell phone back in the day, and I called 911. I said, you got to come over. My son fell on his head off about a, a three-foot ledge, and they say, you're going to come right over. And I'm hoping that we get this over with before Janet comes in. Well, before you know it, I hear sirens in the distance, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, somebody must have lit a fire. <laughs> must be a fire somewhere. wonder where that fire is. It must be nearby. It's getting closer and closer and closer. And I go to the front door, and lo and behold, big old red fire truck pulls up with the lights flashing and the sirens go really loud and of course the ambulance comes up with it because you know you got to pull out all the stops or something like this when there is an emergency call you don't just send the EMTs you don't just send the ambulance you send the fire truck too so this fire truck pulls down our narrow street the ambulance is there and the firemen and the EMTs get out of their trucks put on their hats come up to the front door and I'm thinking why don't we just tell the whole neighborhood that I'm an idiot And I killed my son. Why don't we just tell the whole neighborhood? So they come into the house, and they're checking him out and everything, and they're like, hey, you did the right thing by calling us. He looks perfectly fine. He landed on that hat that you put on him, that funky-looking hat, and that probably cushioned his fall. So how about that? So he looks fine. Just watch his behavior. If he starts doing anything kind of funky, if he starts behaving weird like you, if he starts doing something funky, then give us a call. But he's probably going to be fine. There's no evidence of a concussion, nothing like that. So I said, man, this is, this is fantastic. And I'm thinking to myself, the real issue is that we can get all of this done and you can go your merry way and my wife won't even be here and she won't even know what happened and there won't even be a further health consequence. This is a godsend as long as this takes place before my wife pulls up. I look out the window and there's my wife pulling up in the road. There she is. Fire truck, ambulance. <laughs> my wife gets out of the car. Did you start a fire? Hun, would I start a fire? Why would I start a fire? You know me better than that. I would never be as careless as to start a fire. Why, the only thing I did was put our son on a three-foot ledge, turn my back on him, so he landed on his head. That's what I did. I should have had the firemen and the EMTs stay for the discussion that took place after they left. I was taken to task, rightly so, for being that stupid. And you better believe, I have not put my teenage sons on a shelf since then, all right? And he's okay now. Everything's fine. He's fantastic. I'm the real jester, I guess, in that whole story. When you think about that, it is a great reminder for us of how life throws curveballs at us. There are things that happen in the course of our lives where they're not perfect. Life is not perfect. There's stuff that happens in our lives that is not perfect. The circumstances in life, there are things that happen to us where we have to either adapt or die. You have to either adapt or die. Now, that might not necessarily be as dire of a situation, But you need to think about it in this regard. What can die in your life is how you live for God and the intensity with which you live for God. 
Many of us get off to a good start. We're tracking with God. We're walking with him. Remember, nobody who truly walks with God will ever live to regret it. Nobody. You get off to a good start. Things are going really well. But then this happens. There's a thud that happens in life where a circumstance, a situation happens, a curveball is thrown. You know, in baseball, the whole thing for a batter to do is to know the pitcher well enough to anticipate what this pitcher might be throwing down over the plate. So if it's a two-on-one count and you know the pitcher, you know that there's a good chance that maybe he's going to throw a curveball. If he can throw a screwball, maybe a screwball, maybe um, a fastball, maybe a changeup, depending on your track record as a batter and the pitcher. You as a batter, you study the pitcher. You don't just step up to the plate and hope that you're lucky. You know what that pitcher is throwing and you practice for that. You train for that in batting practice. And the pitcher knows who's coming up to bat. So the pitcher knows if the pitcher is worth his salt. He knows whether the person at bat can hit a curveball or hit a changeup or hit a fastball. And you play against each other's weaknesses. That's the way it works. Well, in baseball, you can kind of anticipate what's coming over the plate and you adjust yourself. You can anticipate who's coming up to the plate, but in life, you can't always anticipate what happens. Life is often what happens to you when you're making other plans, when you're focused on something. And what happens in in life oftentimes is we can get ahead of God. We expect God to do something. We put words in God's mouth. And we begin to expect that God's going to do something that he never really told us that he was going to do. But we can color outside the lines. We can embellish things that maybe are in his word and we can personalize them for ourselves. Am I the only one who's done that or have you done that from time to time? You certainly have if you want to be honest with yourself. I have. And you begin to put words in God's mouth and you begin to expect, well, God's going to, and you fill in the blank. And before you know it, things don't turn out the way you had planned them. Curveballs come. A change-up comes. Something happens that you were not prepared for, you didn't expect. A circumstance in life comes, and then you have to either adapt or die. Something's going to give. And so we all know that it's important to read the Bible. If you're a follower of Jesus for any length of time, we all know. How many of you know, show of hands, how many of you know it's important to read the Bible? Right, because we understand that to read the Bible is not just to read the Bible, it's to spend time with the author of the Bible. Any and every time you read the Bible, you're actually spending time with the author of the Bible. And if you're like me, and I'm like you, and we all deal with similar types of issues to one degree or another, life can get very busy, life can get very hectic, and before you know it, with the passage of time, I haven't spent very much time with the author of the Bible. I haven't spent much time in the Bible because of a busy schedule. How many of you can identify with that? Come on, let's be honest, you're in church. You know that that's true. But there's another kind of a problem that can come up in the course of life where it's not just because of a busy schedule, which is often a reflection of misplaced priorities. And sometimes it's not misplaced priorities, it's just that you have a lot of priorities. I don't want to guilt trip you and think, well, you're just too busy, you can't spend time with God. I'm not talking about that. A lot of times we want to spend time with God. We do, we want to, but we're just so busy doing what? Being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good parent, being a good coworker, being a good boss, that you have a lot of stuff on your plate. And sometimes things get really busy and really crazy. But there are other times, and I'm not making an excuse for not spending time 
with the Lord. I'm just being real about life, okay? Would you like me to lie about that? That's the reality. So you have to stay on top of your life, on top of your schedule to make sure that that's not normal, but that that is the exception. You don't want that to be normal. You want that to be the exception. You want that to be the exception because if you're too busy for God, listen, if, if nobody who truly walks with God will ever live to regret it, then you don't want regret by not walking with God. You don't want to find out too late in life that you didn't walk with God when you could have walked with God, you should have walked with God. You didn't because you allowed something else to be more important. That's called idolatry. So you don't want that to happen uh, on a regular course of your life. But there's also something else that can happen in life where it's not that you're too busy. It's that you're too wounded. There's a thud that has happened in your life where something didn't happen the way you thought God was going to cause it to resolve. Maybe you've got a health diagnosis. wasn't supposed to happen this way. You're eating really good food. You're drinking enough water. They say you're supposed to drink between a half ounce and an ounce of water, depending on how many pounds you are. So if you're 180 pounds, you're supposed to drink either 90 ounces of water or 180 ounces of water every day, depending on who you read. You're supposed to drink a lot of water. Some of you are writing that down and thinking, man, that's my problem. I don't drink nearly enough water. So you might say, I go to bed relatively early. I eat all great foods. I get up at a decent time. I watch my weight. I watch my health. I take really good care of who I am and what's up with this health diagnosis. I don't deserve it. This person is smoking. They're drinking. They're staying up late. They're getting up late. And they're, they seemingly have perfect health. What's up with me? And that's a, that's a thud that can happen in the course of your life. And you can feel like, God might love you, but maybe in an esoteric, distant, out of arm's reach way, but he probably doesn't like you. He just doesn't like you. He loves you in a nebulous way. Anybody identify with that? Because I do. He loves me in a nebulous, general way, but like me? He wants to spend time with me? Why would he want to spend time with me? He doesn't want to spend time with me. Why? Because I'm not somebody who's likable. And so... You can have a health diagnosis or you can have a financial situation where you're not where you thought you would be financially. You were a good steward of your money. Listen, I don't believe that it's a formula that if you give to God first, all of your money is going to come in double portion, pressed down, shaken together, flowing over, and you're going to become a millionaire because you're giving to God. That's being preached in a lot of places that if I give to God, God's going to make me rich. Well, what's really going to do, it's going to make that preacher rich. Put something in his pocket. And you can find guys who have personal jets, which anybody who knows about personal jets will tell you it is far more expensive to have a pilot and a private jet than it is to fly first class with the rest of us. You understand what I'm saying? And so there's all kinds of garbage that we allow ourselves to hear and we begin to implement about our finances where we think that uh, God owes me something. He owes me something. I've been faithful. I've been true. Listen, do what's right and trust God for the consequences. Do what's right. It's your God who will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. It's not the Benjamins that you might have in your pocket or in the bank account or in the safe deposit box, which I don't recommend you use. That's not where it's at. But there can be financial difficulties that we go through in the course of life. There can be health diagnoses. There can be relational issues in the course of life where you married somebody and you're having problems that you weren't supposed to have these problems. This does not compute. Your children are growing up and your children aren't growing up as straight and narrow as you thought that they would. Things aren't resolving relationally the way you thought they would. Your relationship with your coworkers isn't what you thought it would be. Your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your employees. It's just not where you thought it would be, your career. So if you have problems in your financial area, it's going to affect your relationships potentially. It can even affect your health. How many times do people 
end up getting physically sick, biologically, physiologically sick because you have financial difficulties, financial woes. If you have a health issue, that can affect your finances. It can affect your ability to work, your ability to make income, your ability to take care of yourself, and that can affect your relationships. Those three are, well, they have tentacles that they can wrap themselves around each other, your finances, your health, and your relationships, your finances, your health, and your relationships. And so what can happen in the course of time is that the circumstances are deeply affecting you and you are beginning to allow yourself, you are allowing yourself to be shaped by your circumstances instead of shaping your circumstances. Hmm, okay, you might be onto something here. Which one are you? Which kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person that allows the circumstances to shape you? Or are you the kind of person who says, no circumstance is going to shape me. I'm going to use the circumstances and I'm going to shape those circumstances. Are you either reactive? Are you a reactive person? Meaning that you just have to take what comes your way and just try to kind of ride it out and be reactive to the circumstances in life? Or are you proactive, that regardless of what is happening to you, it doesn't matter. Regardless of what's happening to you, you are going to shape those circumstances. I like to look at it this way. I like to look at it this way. Either your circumstances are going to drive you or God is going to guide you. Either your circumstances are going to drive you and push you along and shove you this direction and that direction to the left and to the right, shaken and stirred. Either your circumstances are going to drive you and then you're reacting to those circumstances or God, who is above all of those circumstances and bigger than your circumstances, God is going to guide you. And you need to make a decision in life because it's a choice. No one can make this choice for you. I can't make it for you no matter how much I want to persuade you. I can't make this choice for you. You have to make this choice. In fact, you've been making this choice, you're in the process of making this choice, and you're going to have opportunities to make this choice because you either are coming out of a thud, or you are in a thud, or you're heading toward a thud. Thuds are coming. Difficult times are coming. And what can happen is if there's a thud in your past and it seems like God has let you down, it's really true about the Bible. The Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. And so what can happen is we begin to think incorrect thoughts about God, incorrect thoughts about ourselves, incorrect thoughts about our circumstances, and then what happens? That thud permeates and saturates every area of our lives, and we're not spending time with God because we're angry at God. It's no longer an issue of whether or not God likes me. It's really an issue of, can we be really honest? Do I like God? Can you imagine if we were so transparent in church that we actually talk about these things? Is it okay if we talk about this kind of stuff? Or, or do you, you want to just pretend, you, we just keep, the, keep the, the facade that's so easy to keep a facade on, isn't it? How's it going? Oh, it's going great. You ever meet somebody? How's it going? Going great. How are you? Where do you go after that conversation? Yeah. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good. Okay, I'll catch you later. God bless you. Take it easy. Very easy to skate on the surface relationally, not go deeper, not think about things. See, something can happen in your life, might have happened in your life, where 
you think that God let you down. Circumstances were allowed. Get a health diagnosis. Somebody you love gets a health diagnosis. You're not where you thought you would be in, in your career. Your relationships aren't what you thought they would be. Especially today, it's so hard to be socially active in a virtual way, but very difficult to be really social in the here we are present with each other kind of a way. And so friendships could escape you. And if you begin to think wrong things about God, wrong things about yourself, you're going to have a hard time navigating through the circumstances of life because the way you navigate through your circumstances has everything to do. It has everything to do with the choices you make. Because either your circumstances are shaping you or you are the one shaping your circumstances. And you know what makes all the difference in the world? Whether or not you have a clear, definite life purpose. A clear, definite life purpose. You need to know why you are here. You need to know why God has you here at this particular time. What is the purpose of your life? Because if you don't understand the purpose of your life, you are absolutely going to be shaped by your circumstances. You're going to have no ability. You're going to have no desire. You're not even going to have an awareness of the fact that you are the captain of your own ship. You might say to yourself, you want to spiritualize it? No, Jesus is the captain of my ship. Well, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But you have to allow him to steer. So really, it is a choice of whether or not you want Jesus to steer and you're going to ride on that ship or whether you're going to steer and keep him at arm's length because you put words in his mouth and something didn't resolve the way you thought it was going to resolve. So you need to have a clear purpose. You need to know why you are here. Why did God put you here? What is your purpose in being here? And I wish, I wish there was some place we could go someplace, any one of us individually, all of us collectively, I wish there was someplace we could go where we could read about somebody who had adverse circumstances, difficult circumstances, and yet the circumstances weren't shaping them, but they were shaping the circumstances. I wish there was someplace we could go where we could learn an example or two from somebody who was throwing a curveball. Somebody threw a hard, fast curveball to them, and instead of getting thrown off of their footing, they hit it out of the park. I wish there was some place we could go where we could find somebody somewhere who had an adversarial circumstance come their way, something that was not supposed to happen in terms of the way they thought their life would happen, and yet they took it in stride. They were able to take it and shape the circumstance and have victory and live an unlimited life where otherwise they would be absolutely limited, absolutely contained, absolutely thwarted, absolutely discouraged. I wish there was some place we could go to find some kind of story about that kind of a person or two, but unfortunately, there's no such book like that. There's no book that's ever been written about people who are called by God who then faced adversarial circumstances and then overcame those adversarial circumstances. So I want you all just to pray with me right now as we end right here. And I send you all home because there is no hope for change. The truth of the matter is, I'm not going to lie to you, there is such a book. It's the Bible. And the book in particular that we're looking at is the book of Philippians chapter 1. 
where the Apostle Paul, and you can read about him for yourself in Acts chapter 9, you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 and 12, especially chapters 11 and 12, 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, you can read about these amazing visions that Paul had as God had commissioned him to change the world. Be an apostle, write scripture, plant churches, disciple people, help them to follow Jesus. You can read about Paul's conversion on his way on the road to Damascus, and he got converted, he got saved, he had an encounter with Jesus, and his definite life purpose got really clear. God had called him to preach the gospel, to teach, and to plant churches. All of that crystallized for the Apostle Paul, and you can read that for yourself. Now, if you were called to plant churches, if you were called to, to serve and to aid God, isn't that what God has called you to do, to serve him and to aid him? to help him, to partner with him. If that's not what we're called to do, I don't know what we're called to do. If that's what God has called you to do, then shouldn't God help you out in that task? Shouldn't God make the playing field level? Shouldn't he make the road straight? Shouldn't he make it so that there's not difficulty and hardship at all? Isn't the path of least resistance the way of the Holy Spirit? Doesn't that make sense, humanly speaking? I mean, God, if you want me to help you, has anybody had an argument with God? I have. I have had arguments with God. Hey, you want me to help you or not? I want to help you. I'm glad to help you. But you got to help me. Because if you don't help me, I can't help you. And if you don't help me so that I can help you, then we're not really walking down this road together. We're not really partnering together at all. This is like a cruel joke. This is like a cruel set of circumstances. Have you ever felt like that? I want to follow God. I want to serve God. I want to please him. I want to honor him. But health issue, financial issue, relational issue, emotional issue, psychological issue, chemical dependency issue, you name it, some kind of an issue, something that comes along and thwarts the way you thought God was going to do things. You know, when we read Philippians I find it absolutely amazing that it's this Paul who had exceedingly great revelations from God, the kind that he was not allowed to tell other people about in detail, the kind of a guy who was knocked on his butt, perhaps literally, certainly proverbially, on his way to Damascus, and Jesus himself speaks to him. Listen, if this guy who was called by God, anointed and appointed by God to change the world, didn't have everything resolved nicely and neatly with a nice ribbon on it and beautifully arranged wrapping paper, why would we think that God owes us something? Paul was a master of his circumstances. He did not care at all what the circumstances were because Paul understood that the circumstances were not capable of limiting his God who is bigger and better than the circumstances. And Paul understood that it's my job to shape the circumstances. It's not a God-honoring thing for me to allow myself to be shaped by the circumstances. If God calls you, he has called you to shape the circumstances regardless of what the circumstances might be because Paul, we have it on good authority, called by God, anointed and appointed by God, exceedingly great revelations from God. If he's not commissioned, I don't know who is. And here he is writing a book to the Philippians while he's under house arrest in chains. 
You say, house arrest, that's not too bad. At least he's not in a, a dungeon somewhere being persecuted in that regard. You haven't thought about this deeply enough. You haven't thought about this deeply enough because many of us are under house arrest. You're not flying to the level you could fly. You're not going as far as you could go because you just got a little chain around you and you're allowing yourself to be limited to the confines of your house, proverbially speaking. It doesn't take a deep, dark, dastardly dungeon to take you out. All it takes is a chain. All it takes is to limit yourself in any way, shape, or form under house arrest. That's all it takes. And you won't go as far as you otherwise could go. You don't think that Paul was perhaps wondering a thing or two about this after God had called him? Well, how am I supposed to do what you called me to do? How am I supposed to plant churches? How am I supposed to evangelize? How am I supposed to teach people? How am I supposed to disciple people? There's no internet. There's no cell phone. There's no telephone. There's no television station. There's no way to transmit the way that we take it for granted right now. There's no printing press, Gutenberg printing press. That is centuries away. There's no way to disseminate information in an expedient way. It's the same guy, Paul. The time is short. The time is short. The time is short. Well, Lord, if the time is short and you want me to reach as many people as possible, there's no printing press. He didn't even know what that was. There's no smartphone. He can't send a text. can't send a message. There's no such thing as Facebook. He'd have gotten banned anyway if he was on Facebook. He would have gotten banned. We're not speaking politically correct language. He would have gotten banned. Would have been unfollowed, unliked. Twitter, Instagram. What do you think Paul would be tweeting about? What do you think Paul would be using Instagram for these days? What would Paul be using Facebook for? And here, the mighty super apostle finds himself under house arrest, chained, not able to move about as freely in a day of urgency. If anybody understood urgency, it was the apostle Paul. Listen, Lord, you want me to help you? I get it. The time is short. I get it. Want to be about the Lord's business? I get it. I want to do that. But how is that possible for me to quickly disseminate information if I'm under house arrest and there is no modern means of disseminating that information quickly? How can I tell people about your return and do it as widely as possible and as quickly as possible under house arrest? You think Paul was not a deep thinker? You don't think Paul had to have some kind of a wrestling match, some kind of a turning point in his life where he understood where the light bulb went on. Either I let the circumstances get the best of me or I make the best of my circumstances. What about you? Have you been letting the circumstances get the best of you or have you learned to make the best of your circumstances? Is your God too small? too distant, too aloof, too detached, too unconcerned about your life, where he passed you by on his way to blessing other people? Or could it be that you too, like the Apostle Paul, remember the Bible is a book of examples, not just exceptions. Or could you, and I do mean you, learn a lesson or two from the Apostle Paul it doesn't matter the circumstances into which you are thrust. Completely irrelevant. It does not matter what situation you might find yourself in, the calling of God, the love of God, God's like of you, God liking you. None of that ebbs and flows. 
Paul understood that he was called by God to shape the circumstances and not to move even an inch when it came to circumstances that would otherwise undo his effectiveness in ministry. And that's why the book of Philippians is so amazing. Look with me at verse one of chapter one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are of Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please get me out of this house arrest. I can't take this anymore. After all, you know that I have seen exceedingly great visions from Almighty God, and this does not make sense. These circumstances are too overbearing for me. Please get the church together, take up a huge offering, come here and release me from the imprisonment of the Romans. God bless you. I love you. Amen. I mean, that's what we would expect. How long, O oh Lord? You read the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord? You're going to overlook me. Lord, in agony, I cry out to you. I'm waiting. My soul waits for the Lord. Was God late? Where are you, Lord? That would be the reversed standard version if I was reading that. But many of us, it's as if we might as well be reading the reverse standard version. Because our perception of God and our perception of what he tells us and our perception of how to live in the midst of whatever circumstances we might face is twisted and it's perverted and it's doing a number on us. And it's not only doing a number on us individually, if it's doing a number on you, it's doing a number through you. It's doing a number on the people closest to you, not just you. So you better get your stuff together. More importantly, why don't you let God get your stuff together? So you exchange that stinking thinking for the truth about God, the truth about yourself, the truth about your circumstances, and the truth is God does love you. The truth is that God does like you. The truth is if you're a follower of Jesus, you are anointed and appointed. The truth is that curveballs will come your way in life. You will have thuds. You either had them, you're in them, or you're going to experience them. The question is, how will you respond to those? Will you let those become a wall? A lot of talk about a wall these days. We've become very adept at building our own walls between us and God. You're going to let what happened to you and your own understanding of what God should have done become a wall between you and him, or are you going to tear down that wall and say, God, you know, instead of me inviting you into my understanding of what you should be doing in my life, listen very carefully to this. Instead of me inviting you into my understanding of what I think you should do in my life, which makes God a puppet, would you please help me to give up my perception of what I think you should do and embrace yours, embrace your truth? Because the truth of the matter is, many of us, we treat God like a puppet. We treat God like, you know, Will Smith's coming out with his new movie, or has it come out already? Aladdin. And we treat God like a genie in bottle. Come on, Lord. Here's what I want, Lord. <laughs> Doesn't happen. And what we're doing is we're saying, God, here's my understanding of what you need to do, how you need to do it, when you need to do it with the people you need to do it with, the resources you need to do it with. Here's what needs to happen. Please bless this perspective. And for some of us, that's a big awakening because if you will exchange that faulty way of living, that could be the number one reason why you're stuck. 
You could be stuck for no other reason than you're trying to get God to do what you want him to do and you spiritualize it and you're praying about it and you're trying to move his hand and God doesn't want to do it. Instead of saying, maybe instead of God changing the circumstances, I need to change so that I can capitalize on the circumstances. That's huge. That can change your marriage. It can change your parenting. It can change your employment situation, your work environment. It can change your whole family dynamic. So many of us are asking God to do what we want him to do. Instead of taking our hands off the wheel and saying, God, how about if you enable me to do what you want to do? Totally free. Totally free. You'll never be more free than when you let God guide you and direct you. And when you begin to pray, Lord, help me to partner with you and to do what you want to do, regardless of my circumstances. And so instead of reading a a book that is filled with complaints, although Paul would have had many reasons to write a book of complaints, humanly speaking, with all the curveballs that he was throwing throughout the course of his life, we're reading a book of encouragement, a book of positivity, a book of inspiration from a guy while he was in prison to those who were free. Are you under your own self-imposed version of house arrest? Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Sounds like a southerner for y'all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a verse that we're, many of us are familiar with, verse 6. I'm being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, but we take it out of context and we don't understand that this is uh, written by a guy who wrote it while he was under house arrest, had every reason to be discouraged, to be down, to be depressed, to be limited. Wasn't limiting his ability to glorify God at all. In fact, your circumstances often are the exact thing that other people need to see to know that there really is a God. And that he really does love you, and he actually loves them. He really likes you, and he likes them. For God so liked the world that he gave his one and only uniquely brought forth son. You ever thought about it that way? He actually likes you. Helps you think about the love of God in a little bit of a different way, doesn't it? That he actually likes you. I love my wife. I also like my wife. I love my kids. I also like my kids. I love my staff. I also like my staff. I love my elders. I like my elders. I love my deacons. I, they're not mine, but you know what I mean as the senior pastor. I like my deacons. I love all y'all, but I also like most of you. I just want to see if you're paying attention. We can joke around a little bit, can't we? I also like you. I like what I get to do with you. You're a good flock of sheep. And you're hungry and you're sponges. See, people will say, don't worry about it. God's got it in control. Listen, I'm like the Apostle Paul. I'm not concerned about God. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. It's people who often create the problem. 
And you can create problems for yourself, problems for your spouse, problems for your children, problems for your employees, problems for your employer, problems for your church, problems for your neighbor, problems for a nation, because you're making choices based on reacting to your circumstances instead of being proactive and shaping your circumstances. Once you make the transition to realize the circumstances don't shape me, but I shape my circumstances, you're a free person. You're free. You're free. Ain't nothing that can happen to you that God hasn't allowed, that can't be used for his glory, that he won't enable you to endure if you allow God to guide you. Don't let your circumstances drive you. Allow God to guide you. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way, verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. The fruit of righteousness. That's God's purpose in your life, that you would bear the fruit of righteousness, which is defined as being, verse 10, pure and blameless. It's not popular and famous. It's pure and blameless. God's purpose for you, God's purpose for me, God's purpose for the Apostle Paul, God's purpose for the Philippians, God's purpose for each and every one of us is that we bear fruit. And that fruit needs to be characterized as being pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning, Jesus is coming back. One of the primary teachings in the Bible. Jesus is returning. Fundamental teaching in Scripture. And when he returns, he wants you to be ready. He wants you to be pure and spotless, blameless. Meaning, you're not engaged in things that you shouldn't be engaged in. That's what that means. We're made blameless through the blood of Jesus. But our behavior also needs to be blameless. That we're doing what we should be doing. We're living the way we should be living. So it's pure and blameless, not popular and famous. Many church leaders have sold out because they think that to speak on the hard issues of the day is going to cause people to be turned off from the truth. The real question is, well, when are we ever going to get around to talking about the hard issues in life? When are we ever going to really get around to talking about all of the things that the Bible addresses? Because if you wait for the perfect politically correct time to talk about stuff, it's never going to happen. And so today we live in a day and an age where even church leaders are tempted to think it's about being popular and famous and not pure and blameless. God's purpose for your life is that you be pure and blameless, that you bear fruit that is characterized by being pure and blameless. Well, how does that happen? How do you become someone who bears fruit that's pure and blameless? Well, go back to verse one. Here's part of it. There are three kinds of people in your life, and you need to have all three of them in your life. It's part of what helps you 
Live a life that is pure and blameless, bearing fruit. Look what he says in verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says, Paul and Timothy, servants. And he's writing to the church. He's writing to the deacons. He's writing to the elders. He's writing to all these people. Notice he says, Paul and Timothy. You need to have three kinds of people. The first one is a sage. The second one is a sojourner. The third one is a student. You need sages, sojourners, and students in your life. Sages, sojourners, and students. What's a sage? Somebody who's been there, done that. Somebody who's walked where you haven't walked, who has experience, who has knowledge that you need, that you could benefit from. Now, one of the mistakes that we make is we think we have to choose somebody or we need to find somebody who's perfect and flawless, who's completely well-balanced in every area of their life. You're not going to find that person apart from Jesus Christ. That person does not exist. And many of us, we married somebody we thought was perfect and flawless, and then you realize that you are just as flaw-filled as your spouse is. The idea is to find an individual, find individuals in your life so you're well-balanced where you find sages. Maybe you find somebody who is better at finances than you are, somebody who knows how to work on their car and who knows more about mechanics than you do, somebody who is further along in their career path as a leader than you are. You can learn things from a sage or two. And I recommend that you have more than one sage because whatever strengths one of them might have, they also have weaknesses. So you need to compensate for those by having a couple of sages. A sage is just somebody who has wisdom and insight and success in an area of life where you need it. And Timothy had that with the Apostle Paul. Timothy is both a sojourner, he's kind of a hybrid, a sojourner and a student. He is the one that Paul ends up writing letters to, First and Second Timothy. He's the one that Paul's referring to here. Greetings, not just from me, but also from Timothy. We are both servants. We're in this together. So you need sages, people who are wiser, more experienced, who you can learn from. You need sojourners, people who you're traveling with, relative equals. That doesn't mean you're in a competition. The only competition you should have is a competition of spurring each other on, encouraging each other. And one of the greatest sojourners that God has given you, listen, married people, the greatest sojourner that God himself gave you is your spouse. It's not good for man to be alone. You might go into a bank with a safe deposit box room, put a son on a shelf, needs to be told a thing or two, needs to understand a thing or two, needs to have a suitable helpmate. Many of us get excited on the wedding day, and then the passage of time, we begin to think that God didn't put this person in my life. Why did I make this choice? See, now you want to take responsibility for your choices. One of the greatest sojourners that God has given you that many of us who need to rediscover is the sojourner of your spouse. That God gave you the most awesome, awesome gift, humanly speaking, that you could have this side of forever in your spouse. You just don't realize it. Because thinking, thinking often wants to take over and get back in the driver's seat. Cause you to think a thing or two about your spouse, that's not true. Think a thing or two about yourself, that's not true. Think a thing or two about God, that's not true. And before you know it, it's me, myself, and I. It's not Paul and Timothy, it's Paul. I'm just writing this letter and I'm in prison all by myself. Nobody's here helping me. Paul understood the idea that he needed to be a sage in somebody else's life. Timothy understood that he needed that sage in the apostle Paul. You need sojourners, people who are with you, traveling in life together, who love you enough, who care enough about you, who are willing to say to you, you got a booger hanging out of your nose? Can I get it for you? 
Sojourner, somebody who cares about you enough, is a champion for your success. Share book ideas with you. I'm reading this book that's blowing my fuses. I'm experiencing this with my spouse. Have you ever experienced this with your spouse? Yeah, I have too. And what's it like? Well, how do you navigate through that? They care about you. They like you. They want you to succeed. We need sojourners today in the body of Christ. And then students too. Who is it that you're investing into? Who are you pouring into? Who are you helping to become the best version of themselves so that they can one day become a sage. They can become a sojourner. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's it. Sign me up. I'm ready to serve in church. And if you have kids, not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, 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 uh. Wait a minute. We don't want you out there serving everybody else, trying to find students to disciple and to pour into if you are neglecting what's right underneath your own nose. And one of the things that's so rampant in the body of Christ, you got people who are human doings, they're human doings, they're busy, 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 serving Jesus, that Jesus that they recreated in their own image, the one who's mad at them and is only going to be happy if you do a little bit more. Anybody have that kind of a Jesus? The unbiblical Jesus, one of many that's out there? Come on now, come on. Of course you do. You know what I'm talking about. You counsel people. You got to help them understand, man, you're just too busy. Who are you trying to please? God was pleased by Jesus on the cross. There's a difference between being faithful to God and trying to please God who has already been appeased through what Jesus did on the cross. There's a huge difference. You understand that? There's a difference here. This might be just for you between trying to please God in the way that you think he needs to be pleased versus being faithful to God because he's worthy of being faithful too. There's a difference. So many people are driven by trying to get God's approval when it's already been done. It is finished. It is a big word. Everything's been finished. God is completely satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross. You need to be satisfied with it too. So serve God, not because you're trying to win his favor, but because you have his favor. And now it's just a matter of enjoying him and being like him in faithfulness. Does that make sense to anybody? Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. The students that you need to be pouring into, they need to be your own children. They're the ones you need to be pouring into. If you ignore your children, they will go away. And someone else is going to teach them about a whole bunch of things these days that you might not agree with, and more importantly, God might not agree with it. So before you get busy trying to save somebody else, work on what you need to work on in yourself. Work on, cooperate with God on what you need to cooperate on, what the Spirit of God is saying and doing in your own life, and work on the development of your own family put right under your own watch. Because I'll tell you what, my 15-year-old son, my 13-year-old son, it wasn't too long when they were small enough where I could have put them on a shelf somewhere. And now I look up to them, literally, as they're both taller than me, 13 and 15. How'd that happen? I'll tell you what, how it happened. Time goes by very quickly. And once it's gone, you can't hit rewind. Invest in your children while you still have time. They are your students. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your children are your students. They need to know what it looks like. Read about it in the life of some missionary, some other place. It's good to read stories about biographies. It's good to read the Bible. Read the Bible to your children. Read it for yourself. But they also need to see the Bible in action in your life. They need to see the Spirit of God at work in your life. They need to see what it looks like to walk with God from your life, not somebody else's. You are your children's sage. You are. Your children need to look to you and be able to say, I know what it's like to walk with God because mommy walks with God. 
I know what it's like to walk with God because daddy walks with God. I know what a God-honoring couple looks like because mommy and daddy walk with God. Not talking about perfection. There's a lot of apologies in our house, and I hopefully there's a lot of them in your house too. It's not about perfectionism. It's about serving the one who is perfect. So you need sages. You need to be a sage. You need sojourners. You need to be a sojourner. You need students. And you need to be a student. Who is it that you can learn from to grow so that you can be pure and blameless in an age where everybody wants to be popular and famous? You can be pure and blameless and bear the fruit that God wants you to bear. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You can get more resources just like this podcast through the app and website as well.